and welcome to the sixth episode of the Big Green Politics Podcast. I'm Julia. And I'm Sedan. This week, we'll be talking about the elections in Sweden, the anti-corruption protests in Romania, featuring a special guest, Deputy Director of the Green European Foundation, Ioana Banach-Surbu. But first, Julia, tell us a bit about the England and Wales Green leadership elections. Yeah, um, some news from my side of the world. The England and Wales Green Party had their deputy leader and leadership elections. And uh, Jonathan Bartley, who was previously co-leader with Caroline Lucas, got re-elected as co-leader, but this time with Sean Berry, because Caroline Lucas stepped down. And they got a huge share of the vote. And yeah, Sean's a really popular Green. She sits on the London Assembly and she's very well liked. And Amelia Womack was re-elected as deputy leader. She's been deputy leader since 2014. So she, and she's very popular with the Young Greens. So question, with these new leaders, what's going to change? What's going to be different? So they have talked a lot in the first couple of weeks about vapid centrism that characterizes British politics and how they want to move away from that. Well, I guess by saying that they're going to take that kind of a position... They're also criticizing Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, and um, especially when it comes to important issues and and their policy proposals regarding Brexit and migration, because Jonathan and Sean, they also stated that those Labour policy proposals, it's not tame, it's a betrayal. Mm. So yeah, it it was a really interesting election campaign, which brought up some really interesting debates about the direction of the party like you know do we need to be focusing more on the environment and how we relate to labor in terms of alliances and coalitions and Shahar Ali who was the other leadership election candidate was also you know really raising some questions about you know um, representation racial representation within the party direct democracy you know getting back to our radical roots and all of that So yeah, let's see how Jonathan and Sean do in the next couple of weeks. But um, let's turn to the Randon Greens, because we covered them in the last episode, and since then they had their election on the 3rd of September. So what happened, Sedan? Yeah, that was a few weeks ago, right? Um, Maybe it was in our fourth episode? Already forgetting how many episodes we've done. That's not a good sign, is it? (laughs) It's not. Anyway, um, we had talked about how the... Only opposition party in Rwanda is the Greens. And we'd also covered the struggle they've had throughout the years, especially when it comes to getting registered for the elections, etc. And so there was an election on the first week of September. The Green Party in Rwanda made a political breakthrough. They will now have two MP seats because they've garnered 5% of the votes. I mean, it's not that much, but... It's great that they're going to have two MPs for the first time. And when it comes to the other parties in a parliament, um, the long, long time ruler, President Kagame's Rwandan Patriotic Front, and its seven smaller allied parties had 74% of the vote. But it's going to be the first time Rwanda is going to have opposition in the parliament. And it is basically a major milestone. And I think it signals opening up political space in the country. Mm, Yeah, that's amazing news. Congratulations to the Rwandan Greens. I just want to mention Brazil quickly before we move on, because the elections are coming up on the 7th of October. Presidential 
and general elections. And, you know, what goes on in Brazil has a huge impact on the rest of the continent. And about two weeks ago, one of the main contenders in the presidential election got stabbed, which caused a huge uproar. And he he's a really extremely populist, far-right candidate, hated and loved by Brazilians. He's known for his homophobic and sexist remarks. One of the things he said was, fellow congresswoman was too ugly to be raped, that kind of thing. Oh, do we have another Trump over there? Yeah, yeah, he's slightly a Trump. And he, the fact that he's an outsider from the political establishment, because he's from this tiny conservative party called the Social Liberal Party, um, means that he also reminds me a bit of AMLO, that we covered in a previous episode, you know, the Mexican outlier who became president. But they're extremely different in political ideology. Bolsonaro, he's a former military officer and he's made sympathetic comments about the dictatorship in Brazil that ended in the 80s. And um, yeah, he was stabbed um, in early September and it made him shoot up in the polls even more than he already was because he was already kind of leading the polls. It currently looks like the second round of presidential elections will include Bolsonaro and probably center-left candidate Gomez. What about the Greens? The Greens also have a candidate they're supporting, Marina Silva. She is an ex-minister of the environment, and she was the Green candidate in the 2014 presidential elections, where she got a very respectable, almost 20% of the votes. But she's actually from a party that she founded when she left the Greens called the Sustainability Network. But they're both, both parties are supporting her in the presidential bid. I hadn't realized that Brazil had this other environmental party and it does fairly well. It's got four seats in the Chamber of Deputies, one in the Senate, and together with the Brazilian Greens who have seven seats in the Chamber of Deputies, they make quite a environmental force to be reckoned with in Brazil. So yeah, but we'll we'll bring you more about Brazilian politics because it's really it's a really interesting country with a really solid history of land rights movements, of indigenous rights movements. We'll let you know what happens in the elections on the seventh of October. We'll have an update on that. Yeah. One country where the far right has already gained a bit of a foothold is Sweden, who had general elections on the ninth of September. Do you want a fun fact about Sweden before I start, Sadam? Yes, please. Always up for a fun fact. <laughs> well, actually, did you know that it was in Sweden that the banknote was first created, the first ever banknote, in Stockholm in 1661? But interestingly, Sweden is now one of the most cashless societies in the world. So there you go. Okay, moving on. <laughs> it's a fun fact. No, Julie, seriously, though, tell us what happened to this country, which was long famed for liberal tolerance but then what happened yeah so just to provide context the swedish parliament the riksdag has 349 seats and you need 175 for a majority so as usual with these proportional systems no party got that but what normally happens is you you form a coalition yeah they go so for the, coalitions yeah exactly the left block got 144 seats and the right block got 143 seats. So they're much close. They are a bit closer than they were before, but the social democratic left block is still ahead. It was pretty similar to last election, right? In 2014, the social Democrats got the most again with 113. Don't you think how the foreign international media reported 
what was going on in Sweden. It kind of exaggerated the problems, misrepresented the facts, and and it, it's it's a disservice to the readers. Poll has been shaken up by a surge in popularity of the Eurosceptic and far-right Sweden Democrat movement, which could even become the second biggest party in the new Stockholm Parliament. Sunday's election is likely to see a far-right party, the Sweden Democrats, catapulted into second place with support. So the Sweden Democrats, they came third. And, you know, they only got 13 more seats than they had before. So they now have 62 seats. That's not a huge increase at all. It was actually quite a disappointing night for them. I know that it's more clickable, so it makes more money. It, it, it helps the mainstream media. But when you look at the coverage of the elections, you would think, and, and this, is, this is some headlines from BBC, by the way, they were like, the far-right party is going to double their seats. No, no, you're just normalizing the far-right. And and because people people follow those um, Twitter accounts and news, the the way that they see the elections change, and this literally affects the results. Yeah, I think so, and I think it also bolsters the the far right in other countries because they feel like they're part of this international movement for justice, you know, for fighting for the rights of Europeans. They think that they've got a chance because it's more and more normal. If you only followed international mainstream media you would think oh no this is it for sweden this mm. is it yeah absolutely and and to be fair they do in some sense they could be argued to hold the balance of power in a way because what's happened now is that with the social democrat block or the left block that includes the social democrats the greens and the left party that block doesn't have as many seats as it did before and now it there is a deadlock in the sense that no bloc has enough seats to secure a majority. And Sweden Democrats have some leverage here because if either bloc, the right bloc or the left bloc, decided to ally with them, then they could form the government. But the problem, obviously, is that both blocs promised that they wouldn't go into alliance with the Sweden Democrats. Exactly. So that's why it's a bit of a deadlock. So another interesting thing about media and the Swedish elections um, was the study published by the Oxford Internet Institute. And according to that study, one in three news articles shared on Twitter about Sweden's upcoming election was junk news. So, so these websites, basically, they publish misleading information intentionally, deliberately. But... Um, the Oxford Internet Institute called them junk news rather than fake news because they think that fake news is just too contentious, a concept that has also been used to weaponize and discredit media on both sides of the spectrum. So they analyzed almost 275,000 tweets about the Swedish election and they, they looked at five categories, right? So professionalism, style, credibility, bias, and counterfeit. And the result and what they found out... So get this, right? The level of junk news shared in Sweden was significantly higher than in any 
other European election they had studied, and that includes two votes in Germany and the UK's Brexit referendum. Let that sink in. That's that's really shocking, actually. Isn't it? But there is now a huge cert- uncertainty then. And it's it's kind of ironic because these parties get more votes because there is a lot of uncertainty, right? This uncertainty that's fostered by the fact that the world order is changing and this perception of there's an escalating threat like immigration and, and, and that society is more vulnerable and hence under the influence of either a personalist authoritarian strongman or or a political party like the Sweden Democrats because they provide simple answers, right? But then now what you have is more uncertainty. Yeah. 12 days after the election, we still don't know what's going to happen. And there's quite a few options, you know, the the blocks could either work with each other, which hasn't ever happened in Sweden. So that seems quite unlikely. They're not even talking to each other. Or they could ally with the Sweden Democrats or they can, what, what's actually happening right now is that the prime minister, who's the leader of the left bloc and the leader of the social democrats, and who's been leading for the last four years, Sweden, he, his name, I let me make sure that I don't say this wrong, Stefan Löfven, he's Ruined trying it. to, Butcher <laughs> he's trying to um, lure some parties from the right wing bloc into the left wing bloc to give him just enough to form a government, but that's not working at all. Exactly. In fact, he just lost a confidence vote, effectively forcing him out of his post. And this will clearly plunk Sweden's politics into even more uncertainty now. So what's going to happen next is the parliamentary speaker has four attempts to find a new prime minister with a parliamentary majority or one without an opposing majority. If all four attempts fail... Fresh elections must be held within three months, something that has never happened in Swedish history before. And this is why all mainstream parties are anxious now to avoid such an outcome. Who knows what will happen? But what's for certain is that the Greens will never form a government that also has a Sweden Democrats in it. Right. And it's, it's, at this point, it's, I, I feel like I'm having a deja vu or I'm watching the same movie over and over again. Or it's kind of, it also kind of feels like I'm stuck in that, um, that movie called Groundhog Day. Yeah. Because, yeah, like with Trump in the US, Italy, Brexit, it's the same thing. Because like, even when you look at Sweden Democrats, they campaign on a platform of law and order tighter immigration policies they even said they wanted to hold a referendum on sweden's eu membership so you're looking at same the pattern is just too clear there's a pattern yeah you know immigration was the main topic in this election in sweden and that's also partly why you know the greens did quite badly because that's something that they they don't have a strong policy on there well they welcome refugees that is a strong policy yeah, they do. Exactly. They have a strong policy, but it's not what people want to hear. And it's not what... That's not the populist no. and popular no. position. They, they, so they've recently, yeah, had at one point in the recent years, they were the country that was taking in most refugees per head. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, the Sweden Democrats have been, you know, have they been racist for years? This isn't a recent reaction to the refugee crisis. 
you know, they they were formed in 1990, uh, 1988. And they've been around for ages, you know, and they've been saying stuff like opposing adoption from other countries. They really come from neo-Nazi groups, you know. It's not an economic argument they're making deep down, although that might be what they're presenting to the population. Yes, the the mere fact that they have been doubling their vote um, at every election since 2000, that is a bit worrying. It is. But it's interesting what you said about the Sweden Democrats wanting a referendum to pull Sweden out of the EU. Is, is that called a Swexit? <laughs> I like it, either we're, way. We're done. But, we're done. We're done. <laughs> I think it is called a Swexit. Actually, the Swedish Greens have been one of the most anti-EU parties in Sweden, historically. Really? Yeah. So that's that's really going Ooh. against the grain of the Greens because, you know, until until Sweden was, was really integrated, until quite recently, actually, they've been calling for, they didn't want Sweden to join the EU, and they've been calling for Sweden to leave the EU. So... It's been really interesting that now they're one of the parties that is most active in the EU and that they have some amazing MEPs, such as Deputy Prime Minister and leader of the Greens, Isabella Lovin, who who's done amazing stuff in the EU about, you know, fishery policies and so on. So they've they've really shifted on that. Yeah, I think so too, because um she just accused Mr. Akesson, I think, um, spreading, leader of the Swedish Democrats. Yeah, uh, of spreading poisonous words. So I don't see them cooperating on anything, even if it's Swexit. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I don't think they're anti-EU anymore. But they also have so much less power on the political arena, right? Because they went from 26 seats to 16 seats. And they're now officially the smallest group in Parliament. Oh, God. And it's a bit scary, really, because for them, because they, they got 7.3% of the vote last time. And this time they've got 4.4%, which is only just above the 4% limit that you need to get into parliament. So they've gone from, you know, being part of the government, being in this ruling coalition where they've had loads of ministers. They've had Deputy Prime Minister Isabella Leuven. They had impact. They had a voice. They did have impact. And actually, despite working with Stefan Leuven, the prime minister, who's really not very good on the environment, he's not at all on the same page as them. They've managed to pass, you know, some some pretty impressive policies. They've got the government to promise to close four out of the 10 nuclear reactors in the country. Um, Mm. They had the greenest budget in Swedish history. They prohibited the exploration of minerals in the Ojnare forest on Gotland Island. They expanded wind power from 2% to 10% of the Swedish electricity mix. You know, they massively invested in sustainable housing. So, They've, they've really had an impact. And I think also this brings us on to media coverage, because what I realized when I was reading up about the Swedish Greens is how much I don't hear about these successes of Greens in government around Europe. And it's really inspiring to hear what you can do once you're in government, even if you're just a small partner in a coalition, right? You can really make a difference. And I think that's how the media does a disservice to progressive politics in that they don't show that it's possible and they don't show that you can have an impact, even if you're only a small part of the political system. I found this quote that I really like. So now from Sweden, let's move on to Eastern Europe, Romania, to be specific. On the second week of August, thousands of Romanians rallied against the Social Democrat government in anti-corruption protests, demanding 
Prime Minister stepped down. Social Democratic government and its Prime Minister, Sorin Grindiano, passed an emergency bill. What did this decree say? Well, it said that politicians who accepted bribes for less than 44,000 euros did not have to face jail time or pay any fines. After six days of public pressure, the decree was reversed. Earlier this year, Kaveshi, largely perceived as a fearless badass who wouldn't back down from anyone, got fired. Many Romanians felt her dismissal was politically motivated. In July, the parliament passed a series of legislative changes that make it harder to prosecute corruption. At first, the Romanian prime minister appeared unsure as to how to react to all of this. So she issued a statement calling for an urgent inquiry to be carried out by the intelligence services to establish what happened. But a few days after that, the Romanian government's attitude has changed. Since then, the Social Democrat government has been trying to establish its own version of the events by changing the narrative and by calling the peaceful protests an attempted coup. In fact, the Prime Minister wrote a letter to the European Commission after the events, calling the protests violent attempts to remove a legitimate government. Protesters waved Romanian and EU flags together, shouting, Justice, not corruption. At the end of the day, no one can tell this kind of a story better than someone who has been there, breathed the air, and fought the fight in the field. This is why we had interviewed Ioana Banach Sirbu, Deputy Director of the Green European Foundation, and started by asking her why she and the other protesters were there and what they were hoping to achieve with these protests. Months back, several groups of Romanians living abroad launched a social media event. They were calling for Romanian experts to join a protest against the Romanian government. The date of 10th of August was announced for the protest in Bucharest, um, and the event became quickly viral. Several groups of Romanians living all over the world announced that they will be joining the protest also in the countries where they live. What we were all hoping to achieve was, well, first of all, to express our disagreement towards the ruling Social Democrat Party, um, but also to request their resignation from government. It's important to say maybe that this is coming after more than 18 months of protest came into power, the, the Social Democrat Party came into power at the end of 2016. We also asked Joanna, who were the protesters and what was the feeling on the streets? So, same as other tens of thousands of Romanians, I traveled to Bucharest together with my family to join the protest. When we arrived to Bucharest, the, the atmosphere was quite animated, but the protesters were very peaceful. What we learned rather quickly, however, was that a group of kids to approach the government's building. That was when the gendarmerie first tried to clear the, the Victoria Square. Overall, however, people were really um, joining the protest with, with their family, with their children, with their friends. You could see groups of people walking together, chanting, singing, some of them making music on the streets. At some point, somebody in the crowd announced that the gendarmerie had an order to completely clear the space um, and empty the, the Victoria Square at 11 p.m., but we didn't really take it seriously as we thought it was just some sort of gossip. Um, when all of a sudden, shortly after 11 in the evening, the gendarmerie started attacking us with 
tear gas with firecrackers and water cannons. We didn't really panic first, but we soon realized this was much more serious than that. The attack continued and we very soon had problems breathing um, and seeing, coughing or, or throwing up. So we started to run and we managed to get out of there. But I think what was really um, unmet in Romania until now was, first of all, that, that the attack was so massive. Second of all, the fact that the gendarmerie started to, even after we had complied with their request and we emptied the square and, and ended the protest, still um, following people with, with water cannons and tear gas, trees of Bucharest, to the point that we had to barricade ourselves. So more than 450 people ended up um, receiving medical care, but of course a lot more than that were hurt to, to a certain extent. Amongst the victims were also journalist crews from Romania, but also Germany and Austria, which prompted um, several authorities and media outlets from the two countries to request serious explanations from the Romanian government. However, the Romanian government had the audacity of saying that the intervention was legal and that nothing wrong had happened, um, justifying the attack, the attack by the fact that there were several infiltrated in the crowd. Next, Johan explained what the EU's role should be in supporting Romanians right now and whether there is much he can do. So at the moment, the entire country is outraged. Several um, opposition parties have requested as well the resignation of the government. And they're also calling on their, the European uh, political families to exclude the ruling parties from Romania uh, from their membership. Activists living abroad are also calling upon the EU to take some measures and don't really buy the fact that the European Union cannot do anything. We see in Romania is really falling short of what Viktor Orban has been doing in Hungary, what the Polish government is doing in Warsaw. The EU has perhaps even invested um, in reacting quickly the Romanian government because Romania is set to take over the presidency of the European Council in just a couple of months' time. So a lot of citizens who are also waving the European Union flags in Victoria Square on the 10th of August and our and the other EU member states for support, understanding and actually to put pressure on the Romanian government to take responsibility for its acts. Unacceptable that nobody has resigned the, the terrible events. Let's keep in mind that the president is actually the former leader of the opposition party, the National Liberal Party. So we wanted to know what he can do and how he and the opposition party were handling this whole situation. As for the Romanian president, he has condemned the attacks through a Facebook post and later on through a, through a press conference. Um, but he seems to have to know perhaps that the ruling party has been trying to obtain a vote of no confidence um, towards the president for, for the past year and a half. So the situation is of collaboration and rather one of um, endless attacks. And many Romanians continue protesting, um, both in Bucharest and in other capitals of the world. I believe that one of our biggest worries right now is that the diaspora, the Romanian expats, are going to be attacked by the government. There is a lot of talk about but also general elections in autumn. We are fighting to obtain a vote through correspondence, but we are not completely sure that this is going to happen, and even more so, we are quite worried 
the Social Democrats are going to try to prevent um, the Romanian diaspora from voting. Definitely a precedent to this um, from the uh, presidential elections of when um, the government back then decided uh, open very little voting stations, which ended up with people queuing for many, many hours to vote, and some of them even uh, being removed from the voting stations after the closing time by by the authorities. The military prosecutor um, has started an investigation, and I believe over 200 complaints have been received individual citizens and also NGOs in Romania regarding the brutality of the riot police on the 10th of August. We conclude with, uh, with some sort of uh, condemnation. We hope that the government is going to take responsibility, that the Minister of Interior is going to resign at least, um, and that we will be allowed to protest in the future without fear that we will be attacked. We talked about the government officials and institutions, but what about the civil society? and their role in the resistance movement against the Romanian government. The protest was promoted by various NGOs, civic groups and movements online. But there was no one entity taking responsibility for the entire happening. In the Victoria Square in Bucharest, there were, um, amongst the protesters, there were many members of political parties, NGOs in Romania, including um, members of the leadership of the Green Party. A couple of days later, presidents of the Green Group in the European Parliament have called on the European Commission to analyze what is happening in Romania and trigger rule of law mechanisms um, to keep the Romanian government accountable and at the same time to, of course, refrain from applying violence. The silver lining behind um, these atrocities of, of the 10th of August is that Romanians are coming together, that they will not accept um, the measures of this government and that they will demand uh, that their democratic values are being respected and that the rule of law um, is reinstituted in the country. Just to end on a good note, the next question is about hope. With many Romanians living abroad, coming home to protest, we asked Joanna whether this gives her hope for the emergence of movements that will challenge the current government and what's next for Romania and the Romanian diaspora. It also gives hope the fact that so many people, um, not just the ones that live in Romania and deal with the reality um, on the ground on a daily basis, but so many people decided to travel from all over the world or decided to use their holiday time in Romania to actually protest against the measures of this government, protest against the same reasons that pushed them out of the country. This is very hopeful. We see a united civil society. We see a more than ever active civil society. Yes, it's clear that the failure of the political class in Romania, and in particular of the ruling PSD, to align actions with the values of the EU has serious economic and social consequences for the country. And the Romanian government's response to a peaceful uprising is a traumatic reminder of the frailty of our democratic gains. But in addition to this, there are a few more takeaways when it comes to what's happened in Romania. So let's get into it. First of all, this was the first ever large-scale diaspora protest. There is a lot of anger amongst the Romanian diaspora. This is mostly because of the lack of confidence in the future amongst young Romanians. Actually, the scale of emigration says it all. 
More than 4 million Romanians have had to leave the country over the past 15 years in search of better conditions. Mind you, this makes Romania a country with the second greatest number of emigrants after Syria. And this is not even a country torn by an armed conflict. But those that have left the country and them coming back, if anything, showed us that distance doesn't matter when it comes to fighting for democracy. So how was this even possible? Well, two words, social media. Like Ioana said, Romanians used social media to bring together thousands of people to organize a networked protest with remarkably little preparation. Since 2017, when the anti-corruption protest first started in Romania, Romanians living abroad had watched what was happening glued to their smartphones. So now it was time for Diaspora to have its own event. And this is how Romanians scattered across the continent suddenly got mobilized for change. I wanted to talk about this to mention an amazing book written by Zeynep Tufekci. She's an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, a faculty associate at Harvard, and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. So in order to understand how protest organizing and activism has been changed by the rapid uptake of mobile electronic devices, read this book titled Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. And lastly, speaking of activism, in another book called On Palestine, Frank Barrett said, whenever he gets the question, why are you an activist? He often wants to reverse the question and ask, why aren't you an activist? And he then explains that we do not become activists. We simply forget that we are. Well, seems like those who took part in the protests in Romania remembered that they too are activists. So for this episode, we'll leave it at that. Folks, that's our show. You can follow us on Twitter at BigGreenPopPod. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show so you can hear it every two weeks. You can find us on any podcast platform. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And lastly, if you want to give us feedback, email us at BigGreenPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much and see you in two weeks.